What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, my guest is Krista Thomason. All right. This episode is a little bit different. It's not really different. It's just sort of different. So Krista, she is a moral philosopher, and she wrote a, uh, a chapter for an upcoming handbook from Oxford. All right. So she uh, is actually part of this project with another upcoming guest, uh, Carissa Valise, who wrote the amazing book, Privacy is Power. And Krista, in her chapter, she focuses on the moral risk of online shaming. All right. This is such an important topic. I cannot even express it. And once I read uh, an early version of this chapter, I was just like, I need to have you on, Krista. So Online shaming, dogpiling, this is part of, you know, the cancel culture conversation, all right? So there's all this debate around whether or not cancel culture exists. That's for another day. But something that we all have to admit is that online shaming is a very, very real thing. So in her chapter and in this conversation, we discussed, like, is online shaming, is it, is it acceptable and is it morally okay? Is it morally justified? All right. Because these are two very, very different things. All right. So we, we discuss that. We discuss what, what is the difference between these and why does it matter? Okay. Because when somebody does something that we, we see as wrong, if it doesn't, you know, uh, meet the cultural norms that we have, we, we think that it's okay to just put somebody on blast. And she actually was also on the Embrace the Void podcast to discuss this. I highly recommend and after this episode, go check out that episode uh, because Erin has a great conversation with her as well. They touch on different uh, subjects from her chapter and everything like that. But anyways, I'm super glad that Krista came on because this is such an important topic. And if nothing else, I'm going to remind you at the end of this podcast, if nothing else, this all starts with us. We are the online shamers. We are the ones who join in on the dog piles. And this is something that I'm very passionate about because as I've mentioned before, back in 2019, I had hundreds of thousands of strangers coming after me on the internet. And it was, it, it was something that I can't even fully put into words, but it is psychologically damning. And like, I had to go through therapy and struggle with my own sobriety and all that stuff. So I'm very passionate about this topic. So if you're somebody who likes to join in on the dog piles, or you would like to see a change, please listen to this entire episode and make sure that you uh, check out her chapter of the handbook, probably the whole handbook, because it's all about uh, digital ethics. And there's not a release date for the book yet, but make sure you follow Krista over on Twitter. That'll be linked down in the description below. She does a lot of great work. She's always tweeting about different articles, research, uh, books, and all that stuff. All right. But before we get started, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And I love chatting with all of you. And some of you are even listening to this episode early. And if you're sitting here and you're wondering, hey, Chris, how do I also listen to early episodes? Well, the answer is simple. Head over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com, become a paid subscriber. It's only $5 a month or $50 for a year, and you get access to all of the regular episodes early. All right. So that is also linked down in the description below. Okay. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Krista Thomason about the moral risks of online shame.
All right. Hello, Krista. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I am so excited to chat with you about this important topic <laughs> of online shaming. So before we dive into it, for those who have yet uh, to meet you, can you give a little bit of uh, your background, what you study and all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an associate professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College, which is right outside of Philadelphia. Um, I am currently the Philip Quinn Fellow at the National Humanities Center this year. Uh, so I am, uh, my primary research is in moral philosophy. I also do some history of philosophy, but mainly moral philosophy. And the, the things that I talk about most in my work are emotions, uh, primarily mm. negative emotions. So I got into this question about online shaming through my philosophical work on shame. So the topic of shame was my first uh, book uh, that was uh, that's Naked, The Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life that came out mm -hmm. with Oxford University Press in 2018. And so in my fifth chapter, I talk a little bit about things like shaming punishments and online shaming. And it's through that work that I ended up doing this uh, chapter for the uh, Oxford Handbook in Digital Ethics, uh, which is about online shaming. Yeah, so I'm, I'm always curious, something I've been asking more authors lately is what, what got them kind of interested in their specific field? Because I, I personally feel like moral philosophy is just such an important topic that is so niche, right? It's not, it's not something we get a lot of people talk about. And so me personally, uh, I got sober in 2012 and I got, Congratulations. Sober, thank you. I, I, I got sober, like do 12 step programs and yeah. you know, they have the fourth step, which is all about like resentments and, you know, you go and make amends and stuff like that. And that was kind of my first time really thinking about morality, right? I realized because, you know, in the fourth step, we read about the harm we do to others and things like that. And I started to realize like something that I perceive as being morally wrong, the person next to me might not be, um, you know, and for example, now I'm vegetarian, other people aren't. And these are just like daily things. But through my own experience of online, uh, you know, uh, dogpiling, we'll touch on some of those different aspects of it. I really started to look at how this is a broader issue and even in political polarization and just disagreements we get in every day, like I've noticed just any any debate that's going on in the political landscape, at, at a certain point, it comes down to morality. So anyways, that's my long way of saying this is such an important topic that we face every single day. So Krista, I'm curious about like what, where were you? What happened when you're like, I want to I want to look into this a little bit more and ask the big questions. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, so it's sort of two things. It was uh, thinking about uh, so negative emotions are the things that I I spend most of my time thinking about, mm. and uh, I am I'm actually a I'm an apologist for them. So I think <laughs> that I think they're a central part of our lives. I think people are too quick to dismiss them. I think people are scared of them. Mm. in ways that they don't have to be. And so uh, the the first book was sort of, it, it was like my first foray into that, making that kind of a central part of my research program, starting with just shame. So I, I wanted to think in really complex ways and, and revisit this question about the value of shame and the importance that it plays or maybe doesn't play mm -hmm. in, in our lives. Um, so so it's the the work that I was doing on online shaming is kind of a, 
it's it's an intersection of those of two things in my thinking. So it's the mm-hmm. intersection of my work on negative emotions. And then the intersection of I just started to get more and more interested in our online relations. Mm-hmm. So I'm a person who thinks that moral philosophy uh, pervades our daily life more than we think, because yeah. of course morality pervades our daily life. And so we're we're always asking ourselves questions about, you know, what do I what do I owe to this person? What do I owe to myself? How do I negotiate these kinds of relationships that I'm in with my friends, with my family, with my coworkers? Uh, morality is much more intimate to us than we realize. So we're spending a lot of time online these days and we are, you know, we're in relationships in some way, shape or form with a lot of people online. And it feels a little bit like our online relationships are sort of a moral wild west. We don't have, right. We, we have some, you know, we have some ideas about how we negotiate and navigate our interpersonal relationships in real life. But it doesn't seem like those norms necessarily translate particularly well mm-hmm. to our online life. And yet we spend a ton of time online nowadays talking to people. So what is it going to look like for us to try to think about our moral interactions in the digital world? And yeah. what do we do with all of these you know, with things like pylons and shaming and that kind of stuff that happens, you know, we've got to think, I think it's time to think a lot more about that because it doesn't seem like online interactions are going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. Like I, I read, I read so much. And what I've noticed, what I've noticed is there are so many books about, you know, just our relationships and connection. There's been a lot of books written on like loneliness, like the Surgeon General, uh, Vivek uh, Murthy, he, he wrote a book on uh, Together. And then there was also uh, another book recently, I forgot the name of it, but it was also on loneliness. But anyways, so many of them were like, hey, human interaction, we need it. And I'm like, yes, right. And surprisingly, these books came out at the worst time during this pandemic where we're all stuck okay. at home. We're using the internet more than ever. But anyways, the reason I I love what you're doing and what others are doing is because you're 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 being realistic about this. Like, hey, social media isn't disappearing. And I've noticed this too. Like, yes, when we have face-to-face interactions, much different, right? But when there's that anonymity of the internet, you know, I'm 36, I came up during the AOL days and then watched social media kind of turn into this thing, right? And and I think it's just, you know, it's kind of I don't know. It's kind of weird how people just like, hey, just don't go online so much and let's talk. It's like, how about we take this thing that we're all using for hours a day and figure out how to make it work and we could be kinder to each other and, you know, not do these insane things that most of us wouldn't do in person. But anyways, I was introduced to your work through the wonderful uh, Carissa Valise who wrote uh, uh, Privacy is Power. She's coming on the podcast soon. Yay. And I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I love the work that she's doing, but this book, this book that you wrote the chapter on for online shaming, can you kind of explain it? Cause this, you're the first author I've had on just talking about a chapter and I've been really digging these books where it's a bunch, it's a big collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. So can you discuss this? Like, is this gonna be like a book for like the public? Is it more for academics? Uh, yeah. You touch on some other chapters that are in the book. Can you kind of mm-hmm. give us an idea of what this project's all about? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's part of this series that Oxford University Press does uh, called mm. the Oxford Handbooks. Uh, 
And so there's Oxford handbooks for a million different things. There's Oxford handbooks for particular philosophers. There's Oxford handbooks for poverty and economics. There's all sorts of different things. So uh, the thought is supposed to be that it's a it's a it's a collection that provides uh, chapters that will give you a sort of big landscape picture of some topic. So if I'm doing online shaming, like part of my job is to kind of give readers a sense of what online shaming is, but also where the scholarly literature is on online shaming. And so I do this kind of like review, as you notice from the chapter, I kind of talk a little bit about what are the sorts of things that people have written about this. Yeah, so the handbooks are sort of like, um, I don't know that they're that they're properly textbooks, but they are meant for mostly college students. So they're mostly going to be uh, subscribe to like libraries are probably going to get a copy, you know, university and college libraries, that sort of thing. They're not so much publicly geared, which is too bad because they're a great way to get people up to speed on some particular topic because they have this huge collection of essays. Each chapter is an essay by, you know, this wide range of scholars that can really give people uh, a nice solid background. Like if you, what do you want to know about digital ethics? Well, the Oxford handbook is going to give you basically this like sampler plate of all these different things that you could learn about digital ethics. So mostly though, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, available to people who have institutional access of some kind, which is again, kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you were kind enough to uh, send me a review copy of this because I, I'm one, I'm one of the people who has access to some of these libraries, but it wasn't available yet. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple of things. So I, I am a avid reader and I'm a college dropout and I love these books, right? There's another book, uh, that, uh, Carissa was working on with a bunch of others called future morality. I'm reading that right now. Excellent book. Your chapter, I just read it for a second time. And like, it is, it is accessible to everyone, right? Like, and, and I think more people should try to read these. Yeah. So. So yeah, so like I was saying, uh, this it, it's written very uh, accessibly to the average person, and I'm I'm curious because you do cite some resources and you do mention, uh, you know, so you've been publicly shamed as well as is shame necessary, which I do want to talk about because I I found that book pretty interesting mm -hmm. and I was questioning some of the things in there too, but um, do you know of any projects that are that are being written for more of a broad audience? Because like I said, and like you yeah. recognize. This is something that's very important for a lot of people to understand. Do you know of anything where people are writing or working on something for a more like broad audience? I don't, nothing in particular on this topic. So I don't know of anything right now that's going to come out. Um, uh, there are, I think there's, I don't know that there's a, there's a really huge push in philosophy, I would say, to think more about ethics in context, in the context of, you know, sort of social media in the context of uh, software development, in the context of uh, artificial intelligence, for example, there's lots of that's really starting to bubble up as kind of a hot topic in philosophy. I don't know of anybody off the top of my head that's working on this in a way that's kind of publicly oriented, which is too bad. And it, and some I think in some ways it's because the scholarly work sort of lags behind in a way. So scholars, I think, tend to want to have something kind of firmly established within the literature, within the scholarly world, before they move to the sort of more public facing work. And because that work is kind of new in the scholarly world, 
I say kind of, because it's one of those things where like, people have always been asking questions about ethics and technology since the technology was very different, right? So we have these, you know, we have older books and that, that are talking about technology, different kinds of technology um, and, and the ethics, the ethical implications of that kind of technology. But yeah, so I think, I think because the sort of digital technology is sort of new and the scholarship around it is still sort of new, I think you're going to, they're going to lag behind on the more publicly oriented work, which is again, too bad. So one thing that, you know, with, with this lagging behind, because I think, you know, you make this distinction in your chapter that there's, there's a difference between the justification and the effectiveness, right? right? And I feel like once the conversation does come a little bit more mainstream, there's going to be a lot of talk about effectiveness. Can you kind of break down that distinction for us mm-hmm. and why that matters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when when people are talking about online shaming, it's very the conversation can get muddled pretty quickly because people start talking past each other. So there's really two questions you want to ask when you're talking about online shaming. The question that most moral philosophers are in are are interested in is the question is it morally justified? Is it a respectful thing to do? Is it a morally appropriate thing to do? Is it a good thing to do? Is it a beneficial, morally beneficial thing to do? Um, You can cash that out in a number of different ways. There are lots of people, though, who will make a kind of easy elision between that question and the question, is shaming effective? So, for example, Uh, A lot of the arguments in favor of shaming will say something like the following. Well, let's take Twitter, for example. Uh, Well, we need to shame bad behavior on Twitter because if we don't, then no one's going to address it because Twitter, the actual company, won't do anything to stop people from saying, let's say, racist and sexist things online. And so because Twitter, the company, won't do anything, then it leaves us to shame people because we're sort of, it, you know, it's, it's balls in our court and we have to take care of it ourselves. Yeah. So notice, actually, that argument, though, what you're actually saying is, well, we have to, we have to institute our own sanctions because help from the company is kind of not forthcoming. But just because you're left to be in charge of punishing somebody, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right thing to do. It just means that's your only option given the circumstances. There's still a question of whether or not you should be doing that, right? So you might hear people, you know, this kind of stuff comes up when, when you say, ah, yeah, but well, but if you shame people for sexist behavior, let's say, well, they'll stop doing it. Yeah, but uh-huh. that's an effectiveness argument. What you're saying is this thing is really effective at stopping this kind of behavior. Now, I, I have had I'm going to I'm going to tease my economist and uh, my economist <laughs> friends at my at my institution. I've had, um, you know, conversations, for example, with my economist friends who will say things like, well, you know, a really effective way to stop uh, illegal parking would be to institute the death penalty yeah. for, for illegal parking. And you might think, OK, again. That might be really effective in that it would stop people from illegally parking, but you still have to ask the moral question whether or not that's the right thing to do. Is it the right thing to do yeah. to give, you know, to institute the death penalty for a parking ticket? Because we might think there's some other problems with that that are not just like it's a it's the most effective thing. So just yeah. because something's effective doesn't necessarily make it the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, no, a great a great example of that. You know, uh, I was just. Uh, doing some writing this morning about the 
opioid epidemic and the overdose numbers and everything like that in, in uh, you know, in what is it, the Philippines, where he's like, let's shoot all the drug addicts and drug right. dealers. Right. right. <laughs> and you like, might go, I guess maybe that's an effective way of dealing with the problem. Is it the right way to deal with yeah, problems? Right. I don't know about that. And, you know, uh, that I think that's where it gets interesting, too, because there's a lot of moral justification, which I which I do want to uh, which I do want to touch on. But one of the main things I wanted to ask you, because this is what I always wrestle with, is incentive structures. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, I read your chapter again for a second time before we hopped on. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And I can see any rational person reading your your chapter and being like, all right, Kristen knows what she's talking about, okay? <laughs> but the issue is, it it seems like incentive structures outweigh what we know is morally right. So for example, like I am somebody, you know, when, when this all happened to me, I not only got into just moral psychology and moral philosophy, but I also wanted to understand like crowd psychology and tribalism and all these other things. And it seems like, like, so when we look at, online shame like why why do people do right and a lot of it is this tribal signaling right i i am showing my people like hey look look at me i am part of this team and you can get likes and tweets and all these other things so anyways anyways like how do we fix the incentive structure to make people even care because right now it seems like yeah okay might be a little bit morally wrong but Mm-hmm. The attention and possibly money I get for <laughs> for shipping people is just amazing. So right. what do we do? What do we do yeah. about that? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. So let me let me give you two possibilities. So here's one possibility, and this is something that I I think it hasn't. It's starting to be explored more in the software development side and the actual social media platform development side. Mm. So one possibility is: Are there things we can do? to redesign the platforms so that they don't encourage this kind of behavior. So an example of that is Twitter's new feature where if you go to retweet an article, but you haven't actually clicked on the link first, uh, it it asks you this little box pops up and says, do you want to read the article first? Yeah. So the point is supposed to be that it, uh, that it kind of stops you for a second and stops that kind of mindless sharing of things so that people actually stop and and think before they and think before they retweet. So there yeah. are some folks who think that there are technical what I'm going to call technical solutions to the problem of online shaming. Is there something we can do to can we put a 3 second delay on any reply tweet that you actually put out there or something like that that'll that'll force people to think for a second about the kinds of things that they say. I'm not totally sure what I think about that. Um, maybe those kinds of things can work. Maybe they can disrupt the incentive structure a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really know. It, in some sense, it seems like it, it's an empirical question and we'd have to sort of do some studies yeah. to figure out whether or not it works. So that's one possibility. Um, another possibility and that this is where the moral philosophers come in is to, is to start really asking people to be way more self-aware and to <laughs> really rethink how they engage with this kind of technology. Now, is that an uphill battle? Boy, you better believe it's an uphill battle. But Mm -hmm. those of us who do moral philosophy are pretty comfortable with the idea that like, look, hey, moral life is hard. It always has been. That's (laughs) no, you know, that nobody's ever lied to you and said that being a good person is an easy thing to do. It's not. 
So, so is it, is it tough to kind of make us make ourselves, you know, rethink how we're engaging on these platforms? Yeah, it's going to be difficult, but it is. And that, that's why I think actually much more work needs to be done on that side of it, on the moral mm -hmm. philosophy side of it, where we are thinking about and being self-aware about how we're using this technology and yeah. how we are um, you know, how and think being aware of that incentive structure and being aware that this kind of thing is pushing us to go to a place where there's less complexity and where there's less nuance and where we're getting rewarded for mm -hmm. being the most outraged person in the room. And yeah. I think we need to start asking ourselves these questions about, look, is that the right way for us to be? How am I going to be a virtuous online present right and that's that's a really rich and and pregnant question one that i'd like to think lots more about and one that i think we need to be thinking more about because we need to be thinking about you know this is a thing that I, again the technology is going to change no doubt the platforms are going to be different i'm sure who knows if twitter is going to exist in the next five years maybe it won't but there's going to be some new iteration of technology that we're going to be interacting with and so we've got to keep asking ourselves these questions about mm -hmm. how we're going to interact with this stuff yeah yeah so you know what like so i want to dive into like the three main risks that you cover in there but what just popped into my head as we're talking about the incentive structure and everything some news has come up recently is about the YouTube dislike button. Have you mm. have you heard all that stuff? I haven't, no. Oh, okay, cool. I'll fill you in. But first, let me give you a little backstory. Yeah. Because so uh my my online uh shaming or cancellation was from YouTube. I blew up and it got a lot of and then some stuff went sideways. I won't get into the the whole story, but I'll give you some some little details. But Speaking of incentive structures, basically what I was doing was I had a mental health channel just talking about mental health addiction recovery. I was working at a rehab. I'm like, okay, let's do this, right? That doesn't get very many views. But I saw it if I if I kind of clickbaited and made it mm. seem like it was like talking about some online drama with like bigger YouTubers, I can pull people in and be like, psych, let's talk about mental health and addiction, see what lessons we can learn or whatever. And I, I've, I said this to Aaron the other day, and I said this to any other philosophers, like I took a very utilitarian point of view on it. All right. Like, okay, there's one person here. I'm trying to help the many, but, but the incentive structure on YouTube was there would be a bunch of videos about some controversy going on in the YouTube community. And although I was doing something, you know, quote unquote, good, and that's a whole different discussion, like, and helping others, I was also incentivized by money, attention, fuels the ego and stuff, because I went from getting a few hundred views a video to tens of thousands, hundreds of wow. thousands of views. Yeah, it is disproportionate. And like, it's crazy, right? And so my incentives got screwed up. And that's kind of what led to my you know, pitfall. And I look back on that and think about how I could have done that situation better. But anyways, anyways, once it all went sideways and I started getting attacked, like, uh, it was, you know, people coming in, leaving terrible comments. And, you know, obviously since you look in all online chain, like people will tell you that, you know, they hope you die. You should kill yourself. Uh, they find it morally justified to tell me that they're going to rape and kill my mom, all sorts of fun stuff. Right. Oh, God. But one of the things they do too, is they dislike, they'll just come to your video, dislike vomit, whatever. Well, anyways, YouTube just announced in this last week and it's like universally hated that they're removing the dislike button. Mm. Right. And I, I'm looking at it as someone who has been affected by it and I'm like, 
yeah, it's like this is not this is not a, a bad thing. But uh, before that, I think uh, Instagram. I can't remember if they went through it, but uh, through with it. But they talk about this affecting people's mental health and da 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 da. So I'm curious your thoughts. Do you think that kind of changes the incentive structure? Does it kind of help curb online shaming if we only have like a positive aspect and not a dislike one? The comment section is a whole nother ball game, oh, right? But just as far as just that little signal of a dislike, what are your thoughts on that in the realm of uh, yeah. shaming and the moral aspect of mm-hmm. it? Yeah, this, yeah. And it, it may very well be that removing things like the dislike button turn out to be one of those technological solutions that I was talking about, right? So mm-hmm. if you remove the ability for people to say, because what's the dislike button? It's basically somebody's chance to go boo. At yeah. you. <laughs> and so, you know, you remove people's uh, ability to say boo. I mean, they don't, they, it's not like they're being forced to like the video. So, you know, if they don't, if they don't enjoy it, then they just don't say anything or God forbid, they say something terrible in the comments, which is, yeah. you know, a whole other trash fire. But um, yeah, so I, so it, it, I think for, again, I think some of it's an empirical question about how that changes the landscape. I think they'll have to see. Uh, but it could very well be that, like, look, do we, I mean, if you think about it, and this was one of the things that I always wondered myself, when you have a news article, let's say, what do we need the comment section for? Mm. Do you need a comment section on the news article? Especially when it came out, I can't remember which newspaper it was that decided to end their comment section. But yeah. they, when they made the announcement, they said something like 60% of the comments came from an incredibly small group of users. Yeah. So even then, you're not really getting a representation of the actual readership. And you can say that, okay, maybe people want to have a discussion about that. But we, we sort of know how the comment section tends to go. Is it a really valuable feature? Are we really having a lot of discussion? Or is it just a way of getting more page engagement? So part yeah. of the problem here, like you were saying with the incentive structure, there's incentive structures of all kinds. And one of them is, of course, monetary. So, you know, sometimes comment sections are are good for certain things, they're, but they're good for page engagement, which is good for advertising dollars. Yep. <laughs> is that actually creating an environment where we're having a real discussion about the news article or is that just getting eyeballs on the page? Yeah. yeah. So something, something else that I'm just really fascinated with is just the beauty of self-deception, right? And I, I want you to like the last week I've been watching, I know a lot of fellow YouTube creatives, I follow them and stuff and just seeing everybody lose their minds over this. And I'm just like, you guys are just lying to yourselves. And I'm like, oh, how will I know? And I'm like, that 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 logic is flawed because you can still see the likes and dislikes on the back end, just not on the front. So that, that argument is just moot, it's gone, right? But right. I'll tell you this, I went from, you know, my primary platform being YouTube to uh, podcasting. And it's really interesting because on one hand, I had such a headache relief of not seeing all these comments, right? But at the same time, as somebody who's a creator and you know this probably from your writing and stuff, we, we grow based on feedback. We see what people like and dislike and stuff. So just me as a creator, I look at that aspect. I'm like, okay, right. But um, from the tribalism aspect and the conformity aspect, when I see the average, you know, like you asked, like, what's the usefulness of it? When I see the average person, like most people are not creators, they're just consumers of content. And, you know, unless I'm just completely off base with this, I just, I, I see it as a way of saying like, 
I need you to tell me what I should think about this, right? I need to see how many people like or dislike this. I need to read the comments to see what the, the mm-hmm. group says, you know, yeah. and all these other things. And I, again, like that, I guess that kind of bleeds into self-deception. I wonder if people, you know, uh, maybe even have a, a hard time with knowing how they should feel, what emotions they should feel about it. And, you know, cause we are social creatures, we do look to others. So what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Do, do you see, do you see that being a possibility where we just want to look to others if we start eliminating different aspects? What are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. This is an interesting question. And it's something I think about the, the thing that, the thing that I, the way that I think about this is um, through Facebook's little reaction emojis. So when you're on Facebook, right, you know, you if you hover over the like button, you have several different options for ways you can react. You can have a sad face and you can have an angry face and you can have a little caring hug emoji. Um, so here's so here's a question that I've long wondered. Um, is that are, are we getting organic feedback from people? Yeah. Uh, or is it the case that because you basically have this option of five different reactions, what you're actually doing is just fitting what's uh, actually a complex reaction into something that's overly simplistic? Yeah. So with likes and dislikes, are you actually getting a good sense of how people are responding with a like and a dislike button? Or mm-hmm. are what you is what you're actually getting a kind of um, taking something that's actually a complicated reaction and mm. it's just being filtered through these sort of two options, right? Yeah. So there's no, for example, like a like or a dislike doesn't give you a sense of, well, this thing challenged me at first, but then I thought about it later and you know what? I'm, I'm still thinking about it, but I'm, but, I, but it's challenging me and I don't quite mm. know how to deal with that. Or, you know, if I'm liking someone's, you know, someone's Facebook post about something, it's like, well, like I want to, what my reaction to you is actually something like, well, that's kind of bittersweet, but there's no bittersweet emoji. There's yeah. just, and so my my emotional register is collapsed into these very simplified little options. And so I sometimes wonder whether or not the feedback that we're getting on online platforms is really giving us a proper representation of what people think because yeah. it's it's not allowing for it it sort of forces everyone's reaction into this very circumscribed kind of slots yeah. even when your your actual response doesn't really fit into those slots it kind of doesn't matter that's all you have available to you so i wondered how representative any of this stuff really is about people's genuine responses to the content yeah, yeah, and Krista, you just blew my brain up. Like it's not, <laughs> it's probably uh, with. What I you, am a philosopher. It's kind yeah. of what I do. <laughs> it's, with what with what you're talking about, and I'm actually currently reading for a second time uh, Kevin Dutton's book, Black and White Thinking. Right, oh. and a lot of that book brings up questions about you know we look at things in black and white, but the way I'm I'm looking at it now is if I took a thousand people and I said here's apples and oranges, and then I looked at the results and just assume that well i didn't give them these other options maybe maybe someone doesn't like either of them and and that's you know that's something to think about we're putting them in this space and you know i would think like well there are the comment sections but something i had to learn as a creator as somebody who creates online content is that none of this stuff is an accurate description right like as you mentioned too uh comments are coming from a small portion of people like percentage wise because i i would look at it right like you can Let's say a video has 10,000 views, right? 10,000 people watch that video, right? 
you have maybe three or 400 comments, right? <laughs> and maybe like right. a, a thousand likes and dislikes, right? Right. There, there are so many people and there's a lot of people. This is something I'm learning about polarization where there's a silent, there's a massive uh, portion of people who are just completely silent who are undecided on different topics. And, and yeah, we're kind of over, overly simplifying these things with all these little like buttons and stuff like that. And uh, something I've been thinking about and writing about a little bit is just, you know, a lot of this is just to feed the algorithms, right? Like mm -hmm. as a YouTube creator, who's a nerd and like looks into how all this stuff works. And I have a background in like digital marketing and, you know, uh, I, I research this stuff. A lot of this stuff, like the likes, the dislikes, the comments, all that engagement, it's just feeding the algorithms to keep people on by feeding them more stuff. And it's not an accurate, it's, it's not accurate at all. And it's, it's right. just something I, I want, I wish more people kind of understood, but, but I do, I do want to dive into the risks of all this yeah. stuff. And, you know, uh, we'll, we'll break down each, but you talk about disproportionality, uh, co-deliberation, and then um, creating safe communities. So the disproportionality part, that, that is just that i think is the crux of it all right like there is i i lose my mind when i see people say cancel culture doesn't exist this is just <laughs> accounting this is just accountability culture and i'm like i want to find these people and just shake them right because disproportionality disproportionality right like if somebody <laughs> if somebody steals a piece of fruit do we chop off their hands okay right. <laughs> right? Well, you were talking right. about my parking tickets do we kill those people right and and that's that's what i see the the punishment mm -hmm. does not fit the crime like mm -hmm. i i can i can recognize and acknowledge some of the mistakes that i've made and everything like that but if you if you, you if you go to youtube type in the search bar the rewired soul my content is way down the list and what you'll find is videos that have literally over a million views right videos that have hundreds of thousands of views all these comments and i don't even have a fighting chance on there and that's some of the code of liberation stuff we'll talk about in a second but anyways it's completely disproportionate to anything that it i've is. ever done and anyways anyways yeah. i'm bad but can you explain why we need to think about the disproportionality or the different ways that yeah there is this risk of disproportionality with online yeah. shaming Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So this is, I think there's actually, and this doesn't come out that well in the chapter, but I think there's sort of two ways you could think about disproportionality. One of them is um, people are unspeakably cruel online <laughs> yeah. and because of the anonymity, right? We, we're pretty, we know this. So we have too much evidence to suggest the, uh, that this is not, this is not, we're not making this up. This people are unspeakably cruel when no one knows what you're doing. So, um, the fact that you know someone has made an offensive joke or something like this on twitter yeah. you, whatever uh there is this mindset very quickly people will say it's the same people who say there's this is accountability culture right they will it seems as though if you've made some uh, off-color comment or something like this it then people then think i am now justified in visiting upon you literally any and yeah. all kinds of criticism so i can make threats about your family i can say horrible things about your appearance i can marshal eight thousand of my friends to say all of these same things to you i can tweet at you 50 million times and it doesn't matter and it's as though the floodgates just open 
And literally any and all criticism can be visited upon you because you've made one mm -hmm. wrong step. And that, if you think about that sort of in your offline life, that almost never happens. Yeah. I mean, if you think about even your friends or your family members say something that you think is offensive, it doesn't then license you to, for example, you know, scream at them in a public place and then storm off and never speak to them for the next 20 years. If yeah. you did that because your family member made an offensive joke, everyone would look at you in your real life as you being the problem. Everyone mm -hmm. would say, my gosh, what a completely disproportionate reaction. You know, <laughs> you could have just said like this was offensive, but no, you you made this entire scene and you cut this person out of your life. That's just so, that's such an overreaction. And oddly enough, in the digital world, it seems like there's, there's no such thing from some perspective there's no such thing as an overreaction yeah. which I, for those of us who work on shaming we just think well of course there's such a thing as an overreaction right and so like the vast majority of people are are more than the worst thing they've ever ever said or done yeah and and we're pretty comfortable with that in real life we're comfortable with the fact that people need grace and that people make mistakes and the last time i checked no one comes out of the womb with perfect moral knowledge yeah at some point, everyone has made a mistake. At some point, everyone has learned something. And at some point, everyone has done something morally offensive. Mm -hmm. And so we always need a kind of grace and forgiveness and ability to make amends in order to learn and grow. And that's a normal part of moral development. And it just seems odd. It's, it's one of those bizarre features of social media that that whole structure, which we're very familiar with and comfortable with in real life, just goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, uh, the, I, I just keep going, going back to like the justification too, because like when you hear about accountability culture and everything like that, and, and you, you, you being someone who's just, you know, interested in emotions, like that's something that, you know, my background is in mental health. I worked at a treatment center after getting sober. And this is something I would talk with people about a lot is like emotions are normal, but are my emotions or my behaviors proportionate to what's going on, right? Whether it's anxiety or anger, like I used to have anger issues and stuff like that. I would flap the handle and I started to realize like, okay, anger is a natural emotion, but if, is it disproportionate to this situation, right? Mm -hmm. There's a difference between someone being rude to me at a grocery counter and someone like, you know, trying to harm my son, you know, right. like these are two different things in the spectrum. But like you mentioned online, it seems like it's it's very binary, right? It's either nothing or I could do literally whatever I want and it's free game. And, you know, I do, I personally feel that there's a problem with people with a lot of influence, large amount of followings who perpetuate that idea that it's okay because you, you discussed the, the infamous story of Justine Sacco, right? She made an off, she's like one of the originals. Uh, it's in John mm -hmm. Ronson's book and everything. Yeah. She made an off color joke about going to Africa, getting AIDS, but no, she's a white woman, right? And she had like a hundred followers. Nobody was going to see that, right? <laughs> the grand scale of things. Nobody was going to see that. And it just exploded and she lost her job. And, you know, a recent story that I always think about is what happened with Jeopardy, right? The Jeopardy right. host. He had a, uh, a comment from 10 years ago happened and he lost that job. And that's become this normal, but this norm, because we're seeing the online disproportionality affect people's real lives and get them fired. And 
I, I can't think of anybody just being like, yeah, you know, no, that, that does make sense. If you said something 10 years ago, you should not have a job and it should potentially ruin your career. Right. It's like, it doesn't make sense. So right. here's, here's something else that I wrestle with, because you also uh, mentioned another story of uh, a woman at a tech conference, some guys behind her said something sexist. She snaps a picture. Hey, this is not what we do. Right. And there, there becomes a conversation about norms and everything and all that stuff. But here's what I think about a lot with disproportionality, right? Because I think you discuss like, if I, if you said something to me that was rude and I shamed you a little bit, it's just one-on-one, right? But online, you don't, you can't predict the snowball effect, right? So the intent, the intent is often not there. And that's where I learn to forgive people because I don't think people meant to do that. And you mentioned uh, grandstanding from uh, uh, Justin Tosi and Brandon Warnke, and they talk about ramping up. And yeah, we can try to plug up the holes of the ship once it gets to a certain point, but the original person who starts it, I don't think they expect that. So how do we, how do we, how do we gauge like when we're trying to do like a, a small shaming for accountability or whatever, which might be okay, but we have no way of telling if it's going to get disproportionately out of hand, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially with, with online things, because you're, you know, again, when we're offline, it's, it, we're having a conversation. It's just the two of us and we can, you know, hash things out and come to a kind of understanding when you are doing that on social media, particularly platforms like Twitter, for example, where most things are public, everyone can see your conversation unrolling. And mm-hmm. so then people can jump in even with when you don't want them to. So you can have, you know, you can sort of think of yourself. And I think we, at least for me, I, you know, as someone who didn't really grow up with social media, you know, social media came in my life when I was an adult. And, and so I, you know, I still sometimes forget that I could be in a conversation with someone on Twitter. And I might think of that as a conversation between just the two of us but in reality, everyone is looking. So you're in a fishbowl. And mm-hmm. so you might think, you know, this is just a one-on-one thing, but once everybody else gets a hold of it, and there might be people who, you know, don't understand fully the dynamic that's happening. I've seen a number of conversations between two people who have a certain kind of rapport, and then other parties start to jump in on the conversation, but it's because they don't quite understand yeah. that these two people have a rapport already established. And those two people oftentimes have oftentimes have to clarify and say, look, we, we have a thing here, you know, we, we have an understanding here and you guys are not, you're misreading this situation. We're very Mm -hmm. prone to misread online. It's incredibly difficult to really understand what people are doing. Um, Yeah. So because we can't really predict and, and the other terrible thing about this is that you can take someone who's just an average person, not a celebrity, not, you know, just a regular old Joe can then become kind of catapulted into this limelight like Justine Sacco was where yeah. she be- went from being an anonymous person to this household name almost you know featured in John Ronson's book and all this yeah. because you know I news reports etc and that's that's a very that's a that's a dynamic that's kind of unique in some ways to the internet because information can be shared so widely so quickly so we've got to be more mindful of of the way that this can get out of control, even in ways that the two people in the interaction can't mm-hmm. predict, which is why I think it's more important instead of relying so much on shaming, when you have an interaction with somebody who you think is offensive, that you think is offensive, it's more, I think it's a better strategy to start with 
drawing them into that co-deliberative relationship mm. and saying, hey, can we, you know, talk about this thing that you just said? I'm sort of not, you know, you you might under like, hey, I don't know if you know that this is this could be offensive in these sorts of ways, but actually inviting them into a conversation about it rather than just, you know, retweeting this thing and saying, look at what an awful jerk this person is. Yeah, absolutely. And, all right. So, yeah, this this transitions perfect, perfectly into co-deliberation. But before we we talk about that, like something we were discussing earlier is, you know, this is something that, you know, it's for like academics and people, you know, kind of thinking about this stuff. But as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about everybody else who fuels the disproportionality. There are people who have created entire Twitter brands out of online shaming. There are people with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. And half of the day, they're just retweeting with a little comment saying like, look at this idiot, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's on a political issue, whether it's on, you know, a social issue. But aside from that, like you were talking about with, this can happen to anyone, any unknown person, anybody who doesn't expect it. And the media plays a large role in this, right? When they pick up a story, when they, when they see something's popping off because of the way they're incentivized and how they their money with clicks and ad dollars and people want to learn it you'll see just the most random people like there was that story of that uh that that girl going to prom and she wore like a an asian outfit somebody said something but then it just became a national news story we've seen that happen so many times so even though even though we're not getting this into the hands of everybody who walks into like uh you know mainstream bookstore like i almost feel like this like if you have a certain amount of like followers like you should have to read these books and there should be some kind of like accountability yeah. or restrictions on that. And I'm curious where you find, you know, even it might even be like, uh, you know, an ethical conversation about, you know, how do, how do the media or people of influence and things like that, uh, how, like, should they be thinking about this more? Do, should social media platforms say like, Hey, once you have this much power and influence, you have a different set of rules because a lot of them are igniting, you know, they're like, they're, they're like the spark that lights that explosion. So I'm not sure if this is something that you've written about and thought about her. Mm -hmm. What, what oh, do we do yeah. with that? I've thought about it. I haven't written about it, but this is, yeah, the, they're, they're, uh, I, when, when I'm in my most pessimistic moments, I think <laughs> that, you know, technology has this way, specifically social media platforms have this way of just bringing out the worst in people. And, you know, it, it is, and it, many, much of it is a kind of incentive structure where it, people are just driven by, you know, people want to be popular and people want attention and, yeah. and they'll do just about anything to get popularity and attention. And, uh, you know, it, those people who use social media in those ways, I think are probably prone to, to that sort of engagement anyway. So I, I, I want to say that social media gives them a, a, an outlet for it yeah. in a way that something else would also give them an outlet for it. But it also, you know, social media just gives them a really big outlet for it. Um, yeah, the, the media, I think this is a quite... This is a quite tricky problem, in part because the you know media you've got a much more disparate kinds of media. So you know you've got we used to have NBC, ABC, CBS. That was pretty much it. Now we have you know in addition to all of that we have twenty four hour news channels, but then we have all these online platforms. You know BuzzFeed and all these different things. 
And much of what they're doing is looking for clicks and looking for content to put up there because they have to, it's a 24 seven, 365 kind of world. And so they always need something. And so yeah. the latest, you know, Twitter drama and Twitter doesn't help this with trending and that sort of stuff. So it becomes a thing that people will end up reporting on. And so part of the, there's this terrible marriage between the way social media operates and then the 24 7 365 news cycle mm -hmm. that it, if you constantly need content it's always about content all the new content has to come up and you need something to say and you need something to fill airtime and you need something to put up there so that you can get clicks so that you can get ad dollars etc mm -hmm. so I, I do think you know if i'm giving advice to the media outlets I would like to say, listen, you need to think more about how the kinds of things that you're reporting on are exacerbating the things that are happening with these, you know, average people's lives. Yeah. This is, you know, because you can so easily just sort of reach to the social media platforms to get all of the things that you need. Whereas, you know, if you wanted to do a local news story on someone's prom dress prior to social media, you actually had to go to that town and interview that person <laughs> right. and take their picture and that whole thing. And so much of it is just a kind of ease with which we can just scrape this stuff off social media, plunk it into a news article. And lo and behold, now we have something for people to click on. So yeah. I, I think media needs to be a little bit more self-aware about yeah. how they are, you know, really in, in merely kind of grabbing a picture from someone's Facebook page and now reporting on this story, they're, you know, adding fuel to this fire where this person is now no longer able to be an anonymous human anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, when we're about to talk about, you know, the COVID liberation, because something I think about a lot is, you know, um, how, how so many issues are, in my opinion, a result of capitalism and that whole incentive structure, right? Because as, as you're talking about this, it's like, okay, I mean, you know, let's, let's say for some reason, I, I go out to the New York Times main headquarters, I end up in a room with them. I'm like, hey, you guys need to think about this. And they're like, hey, I got, I got like a, you know, three, different million dollar houses I got to pay for. I don't really care if this person like, you know, I'm like, hmm, okay, right. Then you have these like random like uh, journalists or people of influence mm -hmm. on Twitter who are like shaming people. And I, I want to go to them and be like, hey, do you realize how you're affecting people? They're like, I don't care. This is paying my bills. So I'm like, okay, because it would, it would be simpler to go top down, right? You get the few people at the top to, you know, feel a little bad about what they're doing itself. I'm like, okay, that's not as realistic. So then as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking like it starts with us at the bottom up because, you know, we're the ones feeding it, right? Because let's say somebody on Twitter shamed somebody. If we don't like retweet or engage with them, we're not positively reinforcing it. If a news outlet posts this stuff and we don't click on it and engage with it, they're going to look at that and say, this article flopped. We're not going to do that anymore. So it starts with us. But the problem is, is that we freaking love the drama and the shaming. We like feeling better than other people. One thing I thought about a lot during my own situation is the other thing that the internet gives you the opportunity to do is since you're anonymous, not only can you just say terrible things, but nobody knows any of your dirty little secrets, right? Mm -hmm. So you can jump in the dog pile and you can have like 15 bodies in your basement for all we know. Right. You're, able, you're able to go out there and showcase it. So yeah, so for everybody listening to the podcast, it starts with us and we, we got to like starve them for that oxygen of engagement because that's, I think that's the 
most realistic way to do it. But for, you know, how we engage with this, how we look at these situations, that's where code deliberation comes in. And I never really heard that term before. So for the lovely listeners out there, can you break down uh, this risk of code deliberation? What's that mean? What are some of the things that we should be thinking about in that aspect? Yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, you know, the philosophers tend to do the the kind of like way background kind of theoretical work. And so one of the things that, you know, we, we like to think about is this question, um, when we are, when we have relationships with people, when we're, when we're thinking of ourselves as a, a big moral community. So I, I'm a person, I'm a moral philosopher who tends to think of it that way. I think of ourselves, we're a global community. We all have to share the earth together. And so we have to come up with a way to interact with each other. You know, we, we don't have the luxury of just pretending that other people don't exist. So that, yeah. that life isn't available to us. So we've got to figure out how we're going to interact with each other. Okay, so how are we going to do that? So that, that structure is, is uh, where this uh, term co-deliberation, which I take from the philosopher Margaret Walker, who is a feminist philosopher uh, and does a lot of work in, in this kind of area. Uh, it's about... How do we decide? You were talking earlier about, you know, how do, how do you decide you're a vegetarian? Some people aren't. People disagree about that stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do we figure out how we're going to live together when we know we disagree about stuff? Co-deliberation is our way of describing that process. So for Walker, what we're going to do is we have to kind of hammer this stuff out together. And the way we do that is, you know, well, I have some, I make some moral judgments and I have some moral beliefs about things that I think are right or wrong. So do you, we get together and we have a conversation about that. And we try to sort of see from one another's perspective. And we try to come up with some rules that we can all live by together where I can sort of have my space of acting and you can have your space of acting. And, and we, we work on that together as a community. So it's a, it's a common project. Morality mm -hmm. is a common project. So co-deliberation is the thing that we do when we're kind of hammering out, okay, we had this, this thing happen. Some people are upset about it. Other people are not upset about it. We have a lot of different feelings. We got to get together and talk about this. In some ways, this is kind of idealized, but in some ways it's not because we do have these kinds of conversations about hot button issues and, you know, things that happen. And so mm -hmm. it's that, it's that conversation process. So in the chapter, I make the argument that uh, shaming is is uh, antithetical to that process. It is it's not something that fits particularly well with that process. And one of the reasons for that is because shaming is a kind of punishment. Basically, it is you know this person has done something, and this other group of people has decided that it's a bad thing, and so the the shaming that we do toward that person is a way of saying you did a bad thing, and now you're being punished for doing that bad thing by getting all of this negative attention. Mm -hmm. But notice in that dynamic, what has happened is this one group of people has already decided they've they've played them. They've played sort of judge and jury. Yeah. And they've said, this is a bad thing. We have determined it. And therefore, we are now punishing you for it. What we're doing, though, when we do that is skip the step of asking and engaging with that person and saying, hey, wait a second. We're skipping the step of co-deliberation because mm -hmm. co-deliberation requires that we work together to figure out when something morally bad has occurred because we recognize that there could be disagreement about that. And so even yeah. though you, you know, you see somebody do something and you go like, Hey, wait a minute, I think that's wrong. You at you for co-deliberation, if you're actually practicing that you would have to say to that person, Hey, look, I think what you did is wrong. 
But now I need you to sort of come into a conversation with me and either explain yourself or give me some kind of reasons for why you did what you did. And if you can't come up with any, well, now we get to say like, hey, that thing you did is probably not good and you probably shouldn't do that again. But it mm -hmm. gives the person who's the offender um, the opportunity to actually talk to someone and explain themselves and say, yeah. look, here's why I did what I did. Um, and so code deliberation is sort of includes the offender, the so-called offender, the alleged offender, um, that role allows them a role in the process where shaming doesn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, something, something that, you know, we've all heard and I've heard, but I didn't really start recognizing it and, you know, realizing the effects of it, uh, until what happened to me was this court of public opinion, right? I, it just, it just goes against so many things that, you know, the United States is found upon and it's just no due process at all. And, you know, uh, I do think a lot about, you know, the incentive structures, obviously, and everything like that. And for example, the way social media platforms are arranged, the way algorithms work, when it happened to me, basically, like I said, with my content, I was, I, I had like no views. I was virtually unknown. The second I started like bringing in trending topics, boom, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. When it happened to me, any no-name person who just started up a YouTube channel could put the rewired soul in their, you know, in, in, in their video title and thousands of views and you can make money on YouTube. Right. And that's where my issue with due process comes in because the incentive structure and the lack of, uh, any type of journalistic integrity for anybody who could turn on a YouTube camera, like there was, there were people saying that I was, you know, claiming to have credentials, which there was no evidence of. They could just say it, no clip, no, no clip, no nothing, right? Uh, I was accused of having a guy's house swatted, having the SWAT team show up because of a bomb threat or whatever. I was accused of that. I was accused of uh, telling people uh, in my audience who were suicidal that they should go kill themselves, right? So this contributed to the online shaming with absolutely no evidence. And there was no, like, in the aspect of co-deliberation, like, hey, telling someone to commit suicide is probably morally wrong, right? Not probably, it, it, I would say it's morally wrong, like cut and drive, but, but when there's no evidence, when there's no conversation, when there's no just even semblance of a dupe call says, this is where I see such a huge issue with the online shaming because you hear it and you discuss echo chambers, right? And we're, we're all well aware that misinformation is a major issue. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think people fully understand how when we're creating these norms and, you know, what is, isn't acceptable, we're creating these like little miniature communities where people are becoming the arbiters of morality within their small little community. And then that community could just come out of nowhere and just attack someone. But Anyways, when we're talking about this code deliberation, uh, there was recently the news like last week of uh, all these uh, now big names joining this University of Austin and stuff for like free speech. I'm sure you heard of that. And, you know, like, I, I, I don't want to dive into all that. But anyways, part of the reason that they, they're starting this is because of the lack of code deliberation, right? They talked about outrage culture and everything like that. And, you know, I can't necessarily... 100% argue against them because, and I, I'm really curious about your thoughts of it. It seems like on certain issues, when we start talking about uh, 
uh, transgender issues, racial issues, issues with feminism and stuff like that, it does seem like there are people who are like, this has been morally solved. We have the answers. And now, since you've gone against this, we now have the right to attack you, right? So from your perspective, watching all the madness go on, what are your thoughts on some of the quote unquote outrage culture and people not having those conversations because they feel that some of these issues have been solved and so many have just so much nuance to them and require some discussion. What do you Mm -hmm. think? Yeah, yeah, this is so, as a moral philosopher, this has been very difficult to watch because uh, you know, I, I'm, I like to think of myself as kind of like on the pulse of moral issues, given that it's my job to yeah. be, um, and I, and, you know, hate to break it to you, but there's, there's lots of moral stuff that hasn't been solved. Okay. So we, we have in, in moral philosophy, we do this all the time. I have, you know, I, I myself, am not a utilitarian. I have very dear friends who are utilitarians. I think they are quite wrong about a lot of things, mm-hmm. deeply wrong about a lot of things. But but we can still interact, even though we disagree in very fundamental ways about the structure of morality. So that's not unusual within the realm of moral philosophy at all. And and moral disagreement is just accepted as a possibility. So when you then sort of transfer yourself into public opinion and public discourse and you see people who are just saying there cannot be any moral disagreement on this, it's just it's it's baffling, to be honest with you. It's, it's just baffling. And, and people, I think, mistakenly assume that because they are making moral claims, that moral claims cannot be disputed. So if I'm saying X, Y, or Z thing is wrong, then somehow it's not available for someone else to disagree with me unless that person is an awful human. Yeah. And that that structure is just, I don't, I don't know how to say it other than that does not describe our moral reality accurately. Yeah. That just isn't how our moral reality is. So in my more optimistic days, I think it's it's easy to remember. It was not, it's not easy to remember, but it's good to remember that um, I, for a, a lot of people, this is coming from a very long-standing frustration of um, nothing seeming to change, particularly on the front of sexism, racism, that sort of stuff. Mm. I think a lot of people look at sort of the landscape of the world and they say, my God, we're still doing this. Even, you know, in the year of our Lord, 2021, we are still, you know, there are still human beings out there who think that if you belong to some race or another, if you belong to some gender or another, you are therefore not uh, worthy of, you know, human dignity and respect. And that, yeah. and and how can that be? How can that be? And so I think some of the outrage culture is actually just driven by a deep frustration. Mm with that reality. And that is a very difficult reality to face. Yeah. You know, I don't want to downplay that. That's very hard. It's very hard to look at that and realize that that's true. Yeah, no, it's, it's wild, you know, uh, with the guests that I've had on, you know, uh, you know, like recently I had like John McWhorter on and stuff or his book and everything like that. But, um, you know, like my, you know, my political ideals, like I am, you know, I'm, I'm pretty progressive and I'm all about, social justice and all these things and i see these issues i'm i'm half black right and you know when stuff went down last year and i saw these and i started educating myself more and talking with more people like these are big big issues but but then like i understand i i definitely understand that frustration because there's this idea of learned helplessness right and when you feel like nothing's changing nothing you do matters like 
you're going to get angry. And although I, I condemn, you know, the rioting and the looting and all these other things, like on a psychological level, I understand because they think like, Hey, I'm not being heard. Right. But at the same time, I also go back to proportionality, right? And something I mentioned with John McWhorter, because, he, you know, his background's in, you know, linguistics, uh, I asked him about, you know, microaggressions, right? Because I do think there needs to be, uh, you know, like a lot of people are like, oh, we need to stop talking about microaggressions. I'm like, hey, microaggressions give us at least a scale, right? I could right. say, I could say this is at the lower end, but I do see when, when we do get offended and things like that, we need to start kind of looking at these things and saying, okay, there's a big difference. Like uh, in a second, we're going to talk about creating safer communities. And, uh, you know, there's obviously issues with sexism and violence against women, violence against uh, black Americans, violence against transgender, uh, you know, people and everything like that. But, but, you know, the violence is different than someone saying something. Right. And that's, that's why I think we need to have these more, more of these conversations and, and yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know, hopefully people would calm down if we, if we fix some of these other problems, then they'd be more willing to have these discussions. But, but yeah, with the final, with the, that final risk of creating safer communities, because I feel, you know, I feel that the moral justification comes from, Hey, we are helping these marginalized communities. I am shaming you for say, saying something transphobic, something racist, something sexist, something that might lead to harm, right? But you argue that that's not exactly the case. So right. can you break that down a little bit about yeah. this risk of not creating the safety Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I think for a lot of people who, you know, are thinking through the topic of online shaming, I think for a lot of people, that argument is really powerful, right? So the idea that you know, look, if I'm shaming someone for saying something sexist, it's because I'm making it. And, and in doing so, I am now creating a safer place for women because I'm showing that this is the kind of thing that is not tolerated in our community. So the the problem with that is um, we we have, again, a lot of stories from within communities that see themselves as engaging in liberation projects, right? So my my favorite example of this comes from the philosopher Lisa Tessman, uh, she has a discussion in one of her books about uh, Chicana feminism. And so there is a there's a, a tension within the that the Latinx community about the patriarchy and sexism that's within that community. And when feminists who identify with and are part of that community start talking about that, oftentimes they're accused of being traitors to the cause of liberation because they're being critical of the movement. And so any kind of criticism of the movement gets read as betrayal. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves, and that's, a, that's not a good dynamic because we, would, we wanna say that people who are involved in some kind of liberation movement, they should be able to think through and question the values and the commitments of the community and the mission that the community mm. purports to have, right? That just seems like that's a thing we want for all sorts of communities, but certainly we want that for, for these communities. Um, so the question that I ask and that I pose in the chapter is whether or not shaming is allowing space for that kind of dynamic. Is shaming allowing space for the dynamic of we're going to actually sit here and question whether or not 
the movement is really serving certain groups within the community um, or not, or whether or not the values of the of the movement are coherent or whether or not we're living up to those values. We need space for people to be able to ask those questions. And so in the chapter, I argue that shaming doesn't do that precisely because it sort of has this way of ostracizing people. Yeah. And when you start to ostracize people, it's very easy to ostracize people who are critical. And so what you end up with within these kinds of communities is actually further marginalizing the people mm -hmm. who are already at the margins because you end up with this community where no question and no criticism is tolerated. Anything that looks like uh, that is that is sort of comes out as a as a criticism or a question for a lot of people when the stakes are very high starts to look like it's a betrayal or you're yeah. a traitor. And so once people get labeled traitors and shaming has a way of doing that, right? Sort of like yeah. holding people up as, you know, well, we're holding them up as like, this is a bad person who's done a bad thing. Yeah. Um, that you end up basically making your space even more unsafe, often for the people who are already very um, unstable or or uh, precarious within the community because they're usually the ones who are going to make, you know, qu who are going to have questions about whatever the dominant ideology is. So mm. e even though people think, oh, I'm really making this, you know, I'm making this community safer by calling out all of this, you know, whatever these sexism, you know, that if, I, if somebody makes a sex joke and I sort of yell and scream about this. Um, uh, I'm making the community safer for women. I think the question is, like, are you actually making the community safer for women, especially if the women are the ones who want to raise some questions about whether or not this behavior is or isn't sexist or what have you? Um, or are you just making the community sort of more intolerant? Or are you reifying yeah. a certain view <laughs> about what kinds of things are sexist and what kinds of things are racist and yeah. not allowing for any kind of disagreement about that? Yeah, it kind of it kind of goes back to the code liberation aspect, and you know, and and at the risk of being online shamed, well, we could tiptoe around this. But as you're talking about that and talking about marginalized communities, debates within them, so obviously, like you know, on the topic of women and fem feminism and stuff like that, there is there's this this battle going on between the trans debate and quote unquote turfs, right? But I want to focus on a specific aspect because I'm curious if this falls into the realm of what you're discussing, because this is something that the topic of people who have detransitioned is one that really has me thinking a lot and confuses me because I see the trans community as a, a small minority marginalized community who is at risk of discrimination, potential violence, all sorts of harm, just so many things right and this is you know x amount of people right and then within that you have x amount of people a smaller amount of people who started the process and detransitioned so this is an even smaller group but it seems and you know maybe i just don't have the full scope of it but it seems like people who want to talk about detransitioning or even the people who want to talk about their personal experience with it it seems like they're shamed like don't you talk about this you are you are taking away from us and you're going to make everybody think that we're all just making mistakes and i'm like isn't this kind of going against what you know the overall moral conversation is about sticking up for like a marginalized community because now we're attacking an even smaller community so 
can you let me know if I'm crazy? Because I, because I look at this and I'm, I'm just so confused because I'm like, I'm like, Hey, even if it's not a widespread issue, like, can we talk, can we talk about it? Can we, can we have yeah. a discussion? But it seems like it yeah. gets down. So is that in the realm of what you're talking about? I don't yeah, know. yeah, definitely. And this is, uh, you know, and again, all credit to Lisa Tessman who does a great job of discussing this. And it, the point she makes is that we fall even more prey to this trap when we perceive the stakes to be really, really high. Mm. And so the, the, one of the best examples of this for, for my money is actually um, Claudia Card, who's a philosopher who you know, passed away a few years ago. She was one of the first uh, publicly out lesbians in philosophy. Mm. And uh, she incorporated it into her philosophical work. And, and she wrote about a lot of you know, really difficult issues. And she wrote an article that was arguing against gay marriage mm. at a time when the gay community was really pressing for the right to marry. And and that was a really difficult position for her to be. And she was speaking from a, a radical lesbian feminist perspective and was saying, this is not the kind of thing that we should be arguing for because we shouldn't be thinking of assimilating mm. our relationships into what is ultimately a heteronormative sexist kind of dynamic. Like this is not a thing to fight for guys was her sort of her point. Yeah. Um, but she did that at, at some cost because it was critical of something that the community thought was a really important rights issue at the time. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, thankfully she was doing it in a philosophy journal. So, you know, maybe a lot of people didn't read it and nobody cared. But but to, for her to sort of voice that position at that moment was a that was a a, a point of vulnerability for her. Yeah. So you know when the stakes are really really high, when people see certain kinds of momentum or certain kinds of political gains as you know this is the next step and this is going to be the thing that you know that leads to more liberation for us, it's way more likely that in those moments you're going to have more and more silencing of alternative stories of alternative perspectives that are coming from within that community precisely because it's it's people are looking at it and think we, we've got to present a united front yeah so don't present a united front you know people are going to say ah oh, you don't know what you want and, da, 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 and it's threatening to whatever stakes we're trying to you know whatever whatever movement what, whatever policies we're trying to enact or whatever we're trying to accomplish uh, so yeah, so Tessman is the one who sort of says like, look, this is when mm. the stakes are really high is actually when we have to be the most self-aware about mm. this possibility because we are so we're looking at it and thinking everything hangs on this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting, but right before I ask you this, this final, this final question is, uh, now I'm thinking about it in, in my work with like, uh, addiction advocacy and stuff like that, because, uh, there's this growing movement for harm reduction. Right. And I'm somebody who's been abstinent since 2012 and I'm thinking about how high the stakes are. I'm like, Hey, listen, when, when we have, you know, growing overdose deaths, we don't have time to talk about people safely using, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but, but, you know, then I'm, you know, I'm almost being the same thing that I'm, you know, you know, 
thinking about within the trans community because I'm now looking at the the portion of people who have turned their life around from some of these aspects. And I've, I've tried, I actually, you know, time recording this today, I have an episode coming out with Dr. Carl Hart. It was all about like, hey, do heroin recreationally and stuff like that. So I, I'm trying to educate myself more, become a little bit more understanding mm-hmm. of that and get out of that kind of mindset of the stakes are too high for us to have any type of nuanced conversation because, you know, it does it does come from that fear, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we say this is okay, then everybody's just going to go, you know, yeah. crazy. And, and, you know, I worked in treatment and within the three years I was there, I had over 80 people die from overdoses during a three-year period. And so I'm like, the stakes are insanely high. I'm not even going to mention that harm reduction, <laughs> but, but I'm glad we're having this discussion because it's opened by my eyes a little bit more and see how this can relate to different types of advocacy and all that. But the last question I want to talk to you about uh, a book that you mentioned in in you know your chapter is Jennifer Jackett's book uh, is shame necessary right and and you kind of you know explain like Jennifer's book is largely about shaming corporations right and I'm like right on because you know they're contributing to climate change they're uh, you know uh, one of the big problems with like wealth inequality working conditions like if you want to shame Jeff Bezos do your thing right. <laughs> But we're talking about like on a, on a personal level, right? The, what I kept thinking about while I was reading, uh, you know, your chapter and thinking about is shame necessary? The, the topic that comes to mind is the Me Too movement and someone like Harvey Weinstein, right? Because all this stuff came out, you know, just everything across Hollywood and everything. But if I'm just specifically focusing on Harvey Weinstein, that dude has been shamed just the kingdom come. And I don't even know, you know, I'm just like, is it, is it even too much? I, I, you know, I don't know. Right. But anyways, the argument for shaming is that, Hey, right. You mentioned like the Scarlet letter, this is telling the community like, yo, we're against this. This stuff is not cool. You do it. Look what happens to you. Right. And it's difficult for me to see what happened to Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein and be like, yeah, shame isn't, you know, necessary, right? But uh, again, I do think that there mm-hmm. is a spectrum and I do think, you know, a lot of people got caught up in labeled as a Harvey Weinstein who just like, you know, did something inappropriate, right? So that, that's something that I'm kind of battling with and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, help me, help me understand because it does seem like yeah. shaming does help shape some behaviors and something like that. It seems like we mm-hmm. kind of have had some co-deliberation like, hey, this isn't cool. So mm-hmm. yeah, what, what yeah this is a great, yeah, this is, that's a great question. And, and two, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think it's good. It's always good for people to test themselves on cases that they think are really sympathetic. Right. So it's like, <laughs> so like really put yourself and go like, Oh, I don't know. Like if anybody deserves it, Harvey Weinstein seems to deserve <laughs> it. Right. And so, yeah. you know, so always test yourself with, with cases you feel are really compelling. Um, yeah. So, so I wonder here's how I've kind of tried to navigate this for myself is uh, I think there, there's a distinction between shaming an, uh, an individual bad actor for something mm-hmm. and bringing things to light that had otherwise been hidden. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's happening with, with Harvey Weinstein is that you have women who are coming forward and, in the, and any of these other sort of serial sexual harassers. Um, you have women who are finally coming forward and saying, 
this, I want to publicly make everyone aware that this person did this thing to me. Right. And, and now I'm going to, you know, allow for other women to sort of come forward and say the same sort of thing. So I guess one question we have to ask is whether or not publicly identifying one's accuser is, is that a way of shaming that person? And I don't, no, right? It's a little hard to imagine how you could avoid sh doing something that looks like shaming when you kind of publicly accuse someone of something. Yeah. But I do think there's a question about what, where is the difference, if there is one, between shaming somebody and making a kind of public accusation against a person of wrongdoing? Mm. And so it may very well be the case that for, for these sorts of situations, the public accusation in part has to do with the fact that Harvey Weinstein is a powerful public figure in some ways. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though he's like a random guy, right? He's a guy yeah. who occupies a certain kind of position of power, a certain he's well known. Um, he's in a circle of other famous people. And so there's a sort of um, unavoidability of the public nature of these accusations. Yeah. So so there's there's cases like you might want to think about two different cases, right? A Harvey Weinstein-like case, but then maybe there's another case of someone who's just uh, a, a less high-profile figure, mm -hmm. but who is also someone who is engaged in various kinds of serial harassment, right? So there's, um, there's definitely professional philosophers who fall into this category, who within the philosophy community, people have found out, have you know, done all of these sorts of terrible things and are serial sexual harassers. It doesn't, it really hasn't translated so much into the public eye, although you know, depending on, you can do Google searches, you can find this kind of stuff. But, mm -hmm. um, but there is a sort of inevitable public publicity about somebody like Harvey Weinstein, who's a public figure in some ways, where any yeah. kind of public accusation is going to, it's going to look a little bit like shaming, because you are going to have to draw public attention. Yeah. And so then I think there's this other question about whether or not the drawing of public attention, this is kind of to Jackett's point, is the drawing of public attention necessary in order to get this problem addressed, in order to get these women's voices heard, yeah. in order for this to make, in order for us to make any kind of progress on this. And that I don't, I don't have the answer to that. I don't yeah. really know. But it, it seems to me like that's the, that's the question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it, it goes, you know, back to like uh, proportionality and, you know, uh, the power you know, to like someone like Harvey Weinstein, but just real quick, what came to mind was a year or two ago, this, this really big, uh, influencer uh just started a twitter thread and said hey women uh let us know who has sexually assaulted you in the past and we'll we'll shame them <laughs> and any like it was like eight or nine o'clock at night and who knows who's drunk who knows who's high who, and and he was and he he was just doing it he was sharing it he was saying hey this person works here and all sorts of stuff and i don't know if you checked into it but maybe we'll do another conversation on tiktok there is a movement for shaming people and it is it's out of control so maybe we oh, can talk no. about that <laughs> we can talk about that sometime but it gets rid of that due process that we were talking about before i'm like right, right. you know so yeah. with, with harvey weinstein like that went through a legal process and evidence and all sorts of stuff but anyways right right Krista, you are one of my new favorite people, and we're definitely going to have to do this again sometime. <laughs> definitely. Um, so, so right now, there's no uh, official launch date for uh, this book you're all That's working right. on. So, That's right. for everybody in the audience who just fell in love with you and your work and your ideas and stuff, where is the best place to find you and keep up to date with stuff that you're working on? And and you do 
you do have a book out or multiple books. Where can people find this stuff? Yeah. So, so my first book is already out. It's, uh, you know, it's with Oxford University Press and I apologize for the insane sticker price on it, but I, I promise you, I had absolutely <laughs> no control over how much they charge for my book. So hopefully if Oscar, Oxford has a sale, you could grab it, but ask your library to buy it. Um, uh, yeah. So working on a new book, that's gonna, I don't know when it's going to come out exactly, but that's my project for the year. It's going to be called, uh, worms in the garden, bad feelings in a good life. So it's about, it's a, it's a publicly oriented book. It's going to be about how do we live a good life with, uh, with our negative emotions without getting over them or, or trying not to feel them anymore. So how do we do that? Um, you can, you can check out my, uh, the, the Swarthmore page, uh, my faculty page that's listed. It's a, it's just go to Swarthmore philosophy and you can find me there and you can have a, there'll be a link to my uh, website. That's got some of my papers and stuff up there. If anybody's curious. Beautiful. I love it. And yeah, with the new books ready, hook it up with a review copy. We'll have you back on because that's excellent. That sounds, sounds like an interesting one, but yeah, Kristen, thank you so, so much for your time. I love this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Krista. I could honestly talk with her about this stuff all day long. It is such an important topic. And, you know, with all these conversations around like cancel culture and everything, I don't care if you're on the left, you're on the right, whether you're on, you know, this side of the argument or that side of the argument, the online shaming is something that every single side of every argument does and again like i said and like we discussed in this conversation it starts with us and personally um just a quick little story i was just actually talking with krista in dms uh the other day because as somebody who has been a victim of this online shaming and the dogpiling i try to be very cognizant of my actions and what I'm doing. And I was even having a discussion with another uh, creator this morning. But what I was talking with Chris about is, you know, when I'm when I'm writing pieces or I'm making content, whatever it is, it's like, how do I talk about certain things when there's also the risk of people from my audience going after that person, right? Uh, because I wrote a piece over on Substack and I shared a tweet of somebody who was just a complete jackass to me, you know? And as a creator, there is some responsibility because although I would hope nobody from my audience would ever do that, we don't have control over our audiences. So there's this weird kind of ethical dilemma that us as creators run into. So as a creator, the best thing that I can do is tell you guys like, hey, this starts with us. Don't join in on the dog piles. Don't do the social signaling and saying, hey, look, I'm part of the tribe. And I want to say, you know, who is morally corrupt? And here's my moral high ground and all these other things. Uh, another great book um, is uh, Grandstanding. And Justin Tosi, one of the two authors from that book, he was on the podcast a while back. I highly suggest that you uh, read that book as well. Check out that episode. But again, all of this starts with us. So resist that urge to join in on these dog piles and really sit back and ask yourself these moral and ethical questions of are you being part of the problem or part of the solution? But really ask too, like, is this effective? Is this morally justified either? All right. So a huge thanks to Krista for coming on. Uh, make sure you're following her over on Twitter. Her uh, Twitter link is down below in the description. So that way you can stay up to date on her work as well as when the uh, handbook, the Oxford handbook for digital ethics comes out. But also, 
make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And you can, you know, give me book recommendations and get involved in some conversations because I love chatting with all of you uh, over on the social media platforms. All right. But if you're new here, also make sure that you're following or subscribe to the podcast. Two easy ways to help support the podcast that don't cost you a penny. Share these episodes like this episode with Krista. Very, very, very important subject. Share it over on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, wherever. That helps get the word out, all right? Another thing that helps out is go leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. It helps a ton, and the algorithms love that stuff, all right? So if you could, I would greatly appreciate it. But some other ways to help support the podcast, again, you can go become a paid subscriber over at therewiredsoul.substack.com. Five bucks a month or $50 for the year. You help out the podcast, and you get all of the episodes early. So that is very helpful. And I mentioned that part of my online shaming and being canceled from YouTube therapy helped out a ton. There was also an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is the service that I personally used while I was being canceled and had thousands of strangers attacking me <laughs> online. So I cannot vouch for BetterHelp enough. So if you want affordable online therapy, working with a licensed therapist, make sure you check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. So another huge thanks to Krista for taking the time to come on. Make sure you are following her. And for all of you, uh, have an amazing rest of your day. I'm not sure when the next episode is going to be up. We have been dealing with a completely insane a problem at our apartment and we are in the process of temporarily relocating and moving as well so i'm not sure what my internet access will be like i'm not sure when episodes will be coming up i i just recently had to reschedule a ton of conversations that i had scheduled so best thing you can do make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter um, because i will keep you posted all right so again have a great rest of your day and i'll see you next time